Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac 1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I'm delighted to say that I am a QAM volunteer. We're all volunteers at the Queensland Air Museum, and I'll be your host for this first episode of Season 3 of Mac 1. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to those who have been loyal listeners of the podcast uh, throughout Season 1 and 2. Today I'm talking to a man who builds full-scale replica aircraft, and uh, I wanted to know why. <laughs> so... <laughs> We get a chance to talk to him. That's Gary Scott coming up in a moment or two. I just have to say that at the time of recording, there's a, a, a sort of a, a sombre atmosphere at the Queensland Air Museum just at present. A couple of days ago, we received news that one of our volunteers, a beloved uh, presence at the Queensland Air Museum, had died very suddenly, and uh, we are all still reeling. Uh, we are all very saddened that our good friend and uh, volunteer guide Peter Grouder died on the uh, about 8 a.m. on Sunday just past I'm recording this uh, uh, on the 8th of February Air Commodore Peter Grouder retired was an RAAF navigator he saw active service flying Canberra aircraft in the Vietnam War and subsequently flew in F-111s for the remainder of his career. He's been one of our very active volunteer guides, and in particular, along with Air Vice Marshal retired Dave Dunlop, Peter was instrumental in creating and delivering our highly successful Ultimate F-111 experience. His cheerful presence will be sorely missed at the museum. Peter was one of a kind, a gentleman, a humble man, always cheerful, always encouraging. His motto, he said to me once, was, never step on enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is contagious, and the more of it you have, the better things will be. He certainly encouraged me in my enthusiasms, and I will find it very difficult to uh, show up and uh, look at that F-111 and know that Peter will no longer be joining us. If you would like to and you haven't already, I do recommend you go back to the final episode of Season 2 that we recorded last November, November 2022, where I spoke with Peter and uh, also uh, Air Vice Marshal retired Dave Rogers about the time that they ejected from their F-111. That was a fascinating story. And a little bit earlier in the season, a couple of episodes before that, Peter very generously sat down with me and uh, shared his experiences as a navigator in the Canberra bombers in the Vietnam War for the RAAF. Really worth going back and having a listen to those if you haven't already. I used to say to Peter, you know, we have an oral history project going at the museum and we really would like to capture your whole career, your your aviation story. And Peter always said, well, 
you know, we'll do that eventually. But uh, get get the stories of those who are older than I am and who may not be with us much longer, because once they're gone, their stories are gone with them. And now Pete is gone. But we at least have some of his stories, and we have very fond memories, and we salute you, Peter, and we thank you for the person you have been, your years of service, and your contribution to the Queensland Air Museum. Coming up in just a moment, my conversation with Gary Scott. Sir Gary and Lynn, thank you for sitting down with me today. Gary, why don't you tell us um, about your connection with aviation? I guess the interest lay with my father, who was uh, in the RAAF in World War II. He was also not a flyer, but he was a, a gunner. He was actually an aircraft engineer, but normally what would happen, they would use the engineer as a backup gunner. But I did have an uncle who bought... A, uh, a possibly a, a B-24. I remember sitting in it as a child. He bought it as scrap metal. A Liberator. A yeah. B-24 Liberator, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, that probably sparked my interest as well. Mm. Now, you're a mechanical engineer? Is that correct? Look, I'm, I'm a, 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 an associate diploma mech engineer. It, it actually came about, I'm a motor mechanic by trade. The associate diploma engineer was basically the guy who did the um, the day-to-day work for the engineer. The engineer was left up to it. But seeing that I've all of the, in the, all of the aircraft that I've actually built myself, I have been the chief engineer of their uh, of their design, and uh, their design does not accurately reflect. When I talk about design, I'm talking about structural design. The design does not accurately reflect the uh, mimicking or copying exactly the design of the actual aircraft. Mm. The the idea of a representative aircraft, it's got to be seen to be the same externally. Yes. Uh, And in some parts, anything that's, that's visual should be visually the same. And we'll come to what parts of the Mustang are actually operable, what parts of them are from real aircraft and what parts are fabricated. But as you say, it's a representation. It's not meant to be a, even a replica, which could be a flying representation, couldn't it? Of course. It? So, yeah, of course. Um, but let's talk about that then. So with the support, no doubt unending, undying support of your wife, Lynn, who also is a member and volunteer at the Queensland Air Museum, you said about, I think it was 2004, you began this, this journey to create a full-scale representation of a P-51 Mustang, is that right? Probably, it may have been in my mind in 2004, I would, I would say 2005, okay. probably a more accurate year. So the, the Mustang, to me, the reason I chose a Mustang mm. was uh, it seemed to be, uh, other than the, the little Oster that I, I used to fly, it seemed to be an aircraft that I had some association with uh, in lots of different ways. My father was based, uh, was uh, assigned to a United States 
um, the United States Air Force, and he flew right. on a United States B-24 Liberator. Right. So, and they were based at uh, Cunderdin, which was a, a wartime airstrip in in Western Australia during World War Two. Cunderdin then became uh, an airfield because it wasn't an airport, it was basically a wartime airfield. But because its facilities were still there and its strip was still serviceable, it became the base, West Australian base, for the Mustangs, which after the, the Second World War and before the introduction of, of the jets, like the Vampire, it became the number one fighter aircraft of Australia. Mm. And what a lot of people don't know is that during the, the, the latter part of the war, Australia was actually uh, given one Mustang by the United States. They were given a lot of spare parts by the United States and they were given instructions as to how to build their own Mustangs because the United States was flat out building the, the aircraft for themselves. This is where the CAC comes into it. And this is where Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation came into it, the CAC Mustang. Yep. It was based, uh, the CAC was based at Fisherman's Bend, uh, uh, south of, of Melbourne. And uh, they built Mustangs. In fact, they actually built the last Mustang ever built, mm. ever uh, built new, at the Fisherman's Bend factory in, I think, 1950 or 51. Australia, as far as I know, was also the only country outside of the United States that actually built Mustangs. Mm. One of the odd consequences of us having built Mustangs here in Australia was that, but they were still very, very popular as a uh, hobby flight, I'll call them a, a sort of a hobby flight or an interest flight aircraft. And uh, they have a, a, a race in the United States that's still run every year. And for quite a long time, Mustangs were El Supremo. And they did serve in Korea, didn't they, in the Korean they did, War? They did serve in the Korean War. Australians used Mustangs in the Korean War. However, the Mustangs did usually futilely go up against the, the MiGs in combat. Mm. Uh, as I said, usually futilely. On one occasion, it actually defeated the MiG, but uh, that could have been more accidental than anything else. But uh, you know, to use a piston-engine aircraft up against a, an aircraft that's 100, 150 mile an hour faster than you are, mm. you're... Uh, Sure. Well, they'd had their day by then, really. Had they, they? they had really had as their good day, as they but, were. Yeah. but as an interest aircraft, yes, yes. They, they continue to this very day. Yep. And uh, the reason that we have the representative Mustang down at the uh, museum that I manufactured is because to go and buy any Mustang that's worthy of restoring at the moment, you are probably looking at $2 million. Right. Base base amount. And of course as you say this was the only way that it was possible realistically for the museum to have this kind of representation there and it's very popular obviously uh, people uh, uh, comment on it 
and uh, many are surprised, you know, that it's not, not a real one. So well have you made it. So let's go back to 2005 then. It's been in your mind. Uh, you recognize it as a significant and, and interesting aircraft, and you decide to build your own full-scale replica. I, my father was very unfortunately drowned in 1953, in December 1953, and uh, he, was, he was fishing at Esperance, which is a seaside resort right on the south of Western Australia, when a rogue wave came and took them both. Uh, my brother was able to make it back onto the to the rocks where they had been fishing from. My father never did and his body was never ever recovered. Mm. The consequence of, of that there was that there was never any real memorial to him. There is now. My brother just uh, in the past year or two has uh, affixed a, a memorial to to one of the rocks or something there I'm led to believe but what I always thought was that I would like to build something as a dedication mm. to my father and a B-24 was out of the question much as I would love to build a B-24 and, and indeed you, you mentioned your dad and we're sorry to hear that that story. Um, so, but there is a plaque affixed to the the Mustang representation with his name, uh, Alan Scott. So, dedicated to him. It was dedicated to him. Okay, so there's a very personal story here, isn't there? A very personal reason for you to go to all this trouble to create this representation. Well, yeah, it, it always it always came back to my father. Uh, I really like Mustangs and. I didn't know anywhere near as much as I thought I knew about them because uh, what I did is that the first thing I did prior to commencing the, the construction was I, I studied the aircraft. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics then. You mentioned materials, you mentioned how it looks and whether or not it's accurate in the sense of, a, of an airframe. I have a picture here. Let me show you. This is a picture of... The, uh, the airframe in its very early stages, yes. uh, that's obviously here at your property, yeah, is that right? <laughs> now what are we looking at there? What, what, is your, what, what have you constructed the, the fuselage frame out of? The fuselage frame in that one there was constructed out of a, uh, a, a square hollow steel tube. I had some hard problems and uh, I've, I've had to have a mechanical valve fitted, so I'm fitted with a pacemaker. One of the things about pacemakers is they are very, very intolerant of any EMF, which is electromagnetic field, and the EMF around a weld of action is enormous. Of course. And it has the capacity, and it did it on a couple of odd occasions, actually stop my pacemaker. <laughs> so I continued doing it, sometimes having to get back up off the floor and uh, until that one was finished but uh, I, in the interval between the Mustang and the Blackbird I obviously became commonsensical enough <laughs> to realise that it was eventually going to be the end of me so I have ceased welding completely Okay. and there is one very 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 early weld on the Blackbird and that's it. Everything else on the Blackbird 
is either screwed, bolted, or riveted. Okay. And we see the canopy on there. Now, that's from a sabre? Is that right? Is it is, actually. It is actually from a sabre, and it was built by the same firm. It was built by a North American, mm-hmm. who, who were the ones responsible for the Mustang in the United States. The canopies are basically the same plexiglass canopy. And the Mustang canopy buries into the fuselage by about 15 centimetres at the front and it sits on, perches on top of the fuselage at the rear. Whereas the Sabre, the canopy perched on top of the fuselage front and rear. Fortunately for me, because I didn't know what I was going to do, the cost of building or constructing Mm -hmm. a wooden mould to mould a canopy, getting the plexiglass and getting the method of heating it evenly enough to form. And David Bussey said, I've got a a Sabre canopy, would you like it? And I said, David, I would absolutely love it. (laughs) But I brought it home and I put it, perched it on and... It obviously didn't fit and fortunately I had a method of heating canopies which my wife formerly used to dry her hair with. <laughs> so I did have to make up a, uh, a form, a shape or whatever and then using it sort of uh, without her knowledge or authority <laughs> I, I was able to, uh, to actually reshape the canopy so that it was close enough for the untrained eye, yes, uh, which included mine, yes, to uh, to get away with to it. To fit on there. Uh, Look, to me, this is part of the fascination of a, of a home-built replica. Is is the ingenuity you require? <laughs> so there's a there are many, let's shall we say, real uh, genuine um, aircraft parts, aren't there, included in the replica? Some of them are Mustang parts. Is that right? Some of the parts are Mustang. Uh, uh, the Mustang it does have uh, some of the gauges, some of the controls are genuine Mustang. Now this was both compliments of, of very good friends of mine. Um, the instrument panel is a uh, is a genuine mm-hmm. that I was able to to purchase. It came from the states. And you were able to get moulds from some genuine parts, weren't you, to create fiberglass replicas? Is that right? Yes. From, Mustang, from the Mustang as well. Yes. Yeah. Plus other aircraft, like I believe the Cessna. There are Cessna wingtips. Is that correct? The Cessna wingtips. The yeah. Cessna wingtips were probably the closest to the actual uh, the wingtips. Now I, I'm not a sheet metal worker, mm. so I, I did have enough skill to know at least where to start. Mm. The aim was to to make it look as accurate as possible. You, know, sort of, uh, you mentioned before some fiberglass moulds. Well, I was able to get uh, a mould for the spinner mm-hmm. on the prop. Mm-hmm. Now, the propeller itself, the Mustang had a, a relatively enormous propeller yes. for the size of the aircraft, <laughs> yes. but then again it had a you know, relatively enormous engine, engine as well, powering yes. it too. Mm. So, yeah, uh, but the then again... Most fighters, you know, sort of were similar. One of the biggest jobs that I had, actually, was uh, the the propeller, the uh, all of the four propeller blades. I actually manufactured myself. Well, you know what? I walked past the Mustang this morning when I was in Hangar Two, and I t- I did that. I tapped on the propeller blade, yeah. you know, and um, 
It's just it's, almost it's, automatic. It's metal, yes. It's clearly metal, yes. yes you you yes, can yes. feel it and hear it. Now, everything about the Mustang was 100% to the museum. The Mustang, the Mustang cost Lynn $37,000, something like that there. And, and we you donated that to the museum. We gave that to the yes. museum. That was, that was an actual gift to the museum. And I know that you had some, some generous donors and helpers along the way in terms of parts, like you mentioned David Bussey, who's currently the QAM secretary. Many of the aircraft at the museum are there because of David Bussey, let's face it. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and dear old Les Bowgen also helped Les, help along Les the Les Bowgen helped me tremendously. The, everything to do with the radio in there. Now there is a complete Mustang radio mm. in there, but everything to do with the radio was a gift from Les Bowgen. Les Bowgen is the person I probably respect the most. And if you want to know anything about Spitfires, you talk to Les. I don't mention Spitfires <laughs> to Les. You can't, can't come to the end of no, it. No. I, I now look, I'm going to show you a picture of the... Uh, you've, you've got a section of the wing taken away so that we can see into the machine guns with the belts there and so on. Now, how did you manufacture that? The, the first thing to do was where on earth would you get enough ammunition to to make it look absolutely real? So I started chasing around, and lo and behold, I was I was able to actually buy not only uh, the uh, some ammo, uh, you know, spent ammo, not a lot, but you know I would get you know, sort of ten here or you know, five there or two. I would buy any amount. This is fifty caliber machine 50 gun. Fifty caliber yeah. machine gun ammunition. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then lo and behold, I was in Kingaroy one time, and I went to a uh, a disposal store there, and there was a a, a section of the link belt mm. that uh, that carried the ammunition, and there was actually a a drive motor because one of the peculiarities of the machine guns on the uh, the Mustang as they found out in combat was the Mustang was capable of creating such massive g-forces pulling out of a dive that it actually stopped the guns from firing so it required there, say, a, a servo assist or something well that's exactly right and I bought one of those motors now so what we see when we stand on the on the platform next to the Mustang into the wing that's what we're seeing there that's that? what you're actually seeing now is the that, that there now there is a little bit of cheating going on with that as well so what I did then is I sat down and out of aluminium and wire I made uh, the rest of the link belt by hand but we are looking at at least a portion of a the portion genuine of link that belt is, is genuine link belt now yes, yes. that link belt was common to virtually every American aircraft that right. fired the Browning 50 caliber. It's, uh, to the best of my ability, the whole gun assembly is, a, is an accurate copy. I had to contain the whole lot in what I thought was a field of interest window. Mm. And, uh, and surprisingly, even though the whole thing is, uh, is, is just made, handmade, homemade, copy but I was still required by law to you know, sort of make it secure uh, hence the plexiglass over the top and uh, all of the bolts 
So I think it was 2008 that you completed and, 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 and had a ceremony to unveil. Yes. When it was finally uh, able to be taken down to the, the museum, and the reason for it being taken down that I'm, I'm running into the same problem now with the blackbird mm. is uh, I'm just only one person and while I have a gantry inside the shed I, uh, I decided the easiest thing to do was to take it down there where I could just uh, you know, sort of by calling out get someone to come and assist yeah. me. So the final stages of the build were done at the museum? Done at the museum. Yes. We had a very, very wild weekend of weather wind-wise one time and uh, some of the stuff in Hangar 2 particularly because Hangar 2 didn't have any sides on it at the time it, uh, some of the stuff was actually you know, blowing about a little bit and so what I did was I, I photoshopped the Mustang on top of Hangar 2 in the air you know, <laughs> and and I, I, I put it in you know, a sort of lost and found name, yeah. so lost from Queensland Air Museum, yes. pardon me, one, one Mustang. You're blown away. Yes. <laughs> Listen, Gary, thank you so much, mate. We might, we might draw that story to an end now. I'd love to hear about the Blackbird as well. So we might come back and talk about the SR-71 in another episode and dedicate one to that. So just for now, thank you to both of you, to Gary and Lynn, for allowing me to hear the story but for the generosity that you have uh, made possible for the museum and you you've committed a lot of your your heart and soul to this uh, replica and your heart literally in some cases with your yeah, pacemaker yeah, yeah. and uh, it's just wonderful so if you come down to the Queensland Air Museum make sure you come into Hangar 2 and find your way around to the Mustang which you'll see on display there's a uh, a Rolls-Royce uh, Merlin engine uh, mounted nearby the display. There are boards to describe things. Get up on the gantry and have a look into the cockpit and into the wing and just appreciate and, to, and note, note uh, Gary Scott's uh, plaque on the side of the fuselage and just enjoy, take it in because a lot of uh, heart and soul has gone into this and we would love to think you would enjoy it too. So thank you very much, Gary Scott. My pleasure. Gary and Lynn Scott stalwarts and great contributors to the Queensland Air Museum. That was fun. Thank you for that little story, Gary, and we look forward to the second part of this uh, conversation, which will be to hear about how you have constructed in full scale <laughs> the uh, cockpit section of an SR-71 Blackbird. The plan there is for that also to be going on display at the museum. In next week's episode, I wonder if you know that in April of 1968, a Lockheed P-3B Orion, which was due to be delivered to the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, was destroyed by fire following a crash landing at Moffat Naval Air Station in California. I sat down and spoke to an air electronics officer by the name of Gordon Johnstone, who was on board that Orion uh, when that crash happened. And he describes what happened, what went wrong, and uh, what it was like to deal with that particular emergency, and then the P-3B Orion story as it went on very successfully with RAAF. So that's Gordon Johnstone next week. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to your company next week. Bye for now. <laughs>